You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 47 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, David Ian Howe and Connor Jonan. In this edition of Our Ruined Lives, we are pleased to have Arena Bocci return to the podcast. Arena first appeared way back on episode 7, which was in October of 2019. Arena, it is a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. How are you doing this evening? Thanks for having me back. I'm doing all right. Just, you know, living that stay at home, academic life, virtual learning like everyone else. It's, it's a hoop. It's been a year. Yeah. <laughs> a year and almost, it seems like a year since January already. So. I'd agree yeah. with that. Yeah. Yeah. You doing okay? Yeah. I mean, I'm doing as well as I can. I think being an academic, especially at a institution like where I'm at in Michigan, I think that comes with a lot of privilege. You know, I have the chance to stay at home, to teach virtually, to learn virtually. So I'm making as much progress as I can towards my degree. So I think, yeah, I'm, I'm in a very good position relatively. Good. And since, since we last had you on, were you just starting your PhD program or are you finishing up your master's? No. So I was new. I had just started my PhD then. So now I'm in my third year I'm making progress towards candidacy. It's a long, long process, especially where at my program, we have a lot of prerequisites that we need to kind of check off over the years. So yeah, I'm finishing up classes, trying to get my pre-doc paper done, working on my proposal, hopefully trying to advance the candidacy soon. I'm right there with you. I think we started at the same time and I'm right there working on my candidacy paperwork. And uh, yeah, it's a slog. Feels like yeah. Omaha Beach in 1944 trying to get this thing done. It's definitely been a process, mm-hmm. but I just kind of relating to that. What is your, your like candidacy defense like in terms of are you writing a long paper, a couple short questions and multiple papers, or are they going to lock you in a room for 48 hours with a computer not hooked up to the internet and just have you free type something? Oh, no, no, that's a nightmare. That sounds terrible. It's nothing like that. But it is, it's a long process. So the proposal is essentially you showing your committee that you have thought about the research that you want to do. So it involves doing a lot of background research. At Michigan, it usually involves having some data collected, which I don't have yet because I didn't get to go out into the field last year. It's usually a data-driven kind of presentation where you make an argument for the questions that you want to answer. Um, Usually involves grounding your question in a theoretical paradigm. Many people present a model that they're going to try to use to test their hypotheses. So it's, um, in a way, it's kind of like, it's a research proposal in a way. And then once you're approved, you do have to pass a, like an oral defense. It's kind of a closed door. You just talk to your committee. They make sure that, you know, you've really thought about what you want to do. And once you're approved, you're good to go. Hopefully you have some funding and you go out into the field, you collect your data, you go out for a few seasons and you come back and defend. That's the plan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. That's exciting. And so for those who aren't like familiar with this process, the candidacy part, which you are at, is after you do a bunch of prerequisites and, you know, mm-hmm. obviously get into the school. So it goes like prereqs, candidacy, and then you're actually a PhD candidate. Mm-hmm. And then that last bit is just you're researching. Is that mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. in general how it goes? Yeah, and, and writing lots of grants and hoping you get that funding. <laughs> yeah, I think Carlton's been spending a little time doing that. <laughs> well, that, how's, you, how's the brain doing? I feel like grant writing turns your brain to mush. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had a couple of that. And yes, between my first draft of my proposal and three or four scholarships and grants I had to apply for and working on a, on another paper well, two other papers. It's been, uh, it's been a lot. And, uh, I'm taking this week. This is my, this is my chill week. I've been reading personal books and I'm, I'm just giving myself a break before I'm continuing on. Well, that sounds healthy. That's important. Healthy yeah. boundaries. A lot of M&Ms and personal books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dude, yeah, it's I- the, it's the time. My favorite are the I'm so sorry. I'm totally derailing this, but like the Easter M&Ms with all the pastel colors. I don't know why they taste differently, but they're my favorite. 
but <laughs> makes sense. We all got something like that. <laughs> Definitely. I support, I support whatever you got to do. <laughs> so recently a follower of mine, it sounds so weird to say that, but someone who enjoys my Instagram messaged me and asked, can you give me some advice on a PhD program or what is that like? Cause I, they had nothing or didn't know exactly what goes on. Mm-hmm. And in my master's, I guess I'll frame it this way. You go in and you formulate a thesis topic while you're doing your core classes and then you have some kind of exam and then you're ready to write your thesis and then you Mm -hmm. check with your advisor and you defend and then you have some like papers you have to sign and with the dean and things like that. What is it like for a PhD? I know that's a loaded question, but do you guys know, like, can you boil that down in a way? Yeah, that is a big question. I'll try my best. I want to start by first saying that I think it varies by department. That makes sense. Yeah, different departments are just known for setting up their students for different things. At Michigan, you know, we are we do have a reputation for being processual central. So one of the goals historically has been to kind of set our students up for thinking within a certain paradigm. So we're very theory heavy. Because of that, we are usually a very long program with all of the classes that you have to take in order to sort of fill that repertoire of the old school processual theory. Now we are kind of like changing things up a little, but I wanted to lead with where you go makes a really big impact on what to expect. But I I think we kind of touched on it a little bit in my intro, but it's usually about three three-ish years. I don't know if it's the same for where you are, Carlton, of like classes and prereqs. And then once you kind of check those boxes, you do your proposal. And then afterwards, it can really take as long or as short as you can make it. Some people will need like two or three years of research. Some people can do it in shorter, but some people are in a program for about seven to eight years. So it's a long haul. So my advice to anyone considering a PhD would be like, Make sure that you really love and are interested in what you want to do. Make sure you love archaeology, for example. It's seven or more years of your life that you're going to be committing into this. And I, I don't say this to deter anyone, of course. Like, obviously, I'm here doing it. But make sure you're invested. Make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. And, you know, go for it. If this is what you want to do, I, I think you should go for it. But just, you know, do your research. Okay. I think that's a, yeah, a good way to look at it. I think it's interesting that because people get out of their master's programs or their bachelor program and they're like, you know, staring there, like, what do I do now? And and some, some people see as like the logical next step is just to continue doing it. But there's, there's moments in there where you, you need to evaluate if this is what you want to do for the rest of your life and your career opportunities as part of that. So we are big mm-hmm. advocates on this podcast as well for taking time to think about those, those things. Yeah. For, for us, like my program actually does not, they prefer you to get your master's and PhD there. They're not really equipped for someone to come in with a master's. So the amount of credits I was able to transfer was rather low. So I had to kind of retake a bunch of classes. And and then like an idiot, I took up two graduate certificate degrees, which was an additional 10 courses on top of my other course load, but I was able to use, actually it was really nice that I was able to use some of my Wyoming credits that I couldn't transfer towards those other graduate certificates. So it kind of keeled out, but yeah, it was, I just finished up coursework last semester. So now I'm just trying to work on the disc. So I'm trying to get done. I was originally planning for three years, then COVID hit and now I'm expecting next year. So we'll, we'll see, but it's definitely like arena said, it's, it's a process and you really got to plan it out and, kind of have a have a game plan but with that said things do change what i wanted to work on my masters and what i thought i wanted to do for my phd has definitely changed and allowing me to change departments gave me flexibility to do that for sure i also want to add i 100 percent support people taking their own path so your path is not going to be the same as our paths or so just do what is right for you take time if you need to and also not everybody needs a phd i think you can have a really fulfilling career in archaeology without one so I think it's, you know, it's about finding what's right for you. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And there's no pressure to even stay in the field if you don't want to. Like if you get your anthropology degree, there's no pressure to get a master's in it. There's no pressure to get a PhD in it. Like you could easily 
become a YouTuber and like probably make way more money immediately. So like there, you could do that or become a construction worker because you already know a construction site works pretty well from doing CRM. So like you can do whatever you want, but if you do love it, I think Connor Rich had said this to me, Richard Adams, we'll have him on the podcast here in a minute, but if something keeps you up at night with questions, you should get your PhD on that. And like, obviously dogs keep me up at night, but my physical dog and like the theoretical idea of dogs, but yeah. yeah piggybacking off of that. And even if you start a program, you don't have to finish it. Don't feel pressured to, to finish it there. If it's not a fit for you or if the professors aren't giving you the time of day, or if you're not agreeing with what it is or something in life happens, you know, don't, I think there's that option and you know, it's, it's unfortunately a war of attrition in grad school. You know, you're, you start out with so many of your cohort and you're like, okay, cool. We're all going to graduate together, but then life happens and then things happen. So that's, and that's perfectly okay. It doesn't mean that you're a failure or anything like that. It's just, it's just part of higher education, unfortunately. Which we'll try to change. I hope. <laughs> so Absolutely. we don't have to we don't have to accept that but I do agree I just th- I think it's really important for people to do what is right for them on their timeline if your interests change so so be it yeah absolutely what I was going to say there a minute ago is like on the subject of hopefully that will change like you guys going like seeing my friends that are at Wyoming and other schools like their posts and like calling me to be like hey can we talk and I'm like yeah just watching you guys in school through a pandemic and like everything that happened last year. And like a lot of my friends that had field research and like overseas, like obviously can't go, like we're not allowed to leave the country. So like, yeah, it's like you guys will be looked at as the generation of like anthropologists that just got beamed by life. (laughs) Like it's just like, (laughs) hopefully they'll go easy on you in the job market. But like, like hopefully a lot of people retire after this too. Cause it's, it's like a huge blow to like everyone in America, but like, yeah, you guys are in it. So I respect the hell out of you guys for doing like what you're doing. It's, it's the tough when it wasn't a pandemic and I was in a master's. So yeah, congrats. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're trying. So I guess, how do you guys keep saying as, as part of this, you just keep working and, and hope that you'll get research money and things will open up. Is that kind of the mindset that you guys are taking at this point? Well, I mean, I think it just, it it really varies. Like I can speak for myself. I think my approach has been just to take it a day at a time and just, you know, count my blessings, account for my privilege and just try to make the most of what I can. I haven't been able to go overseas to do my research. That is a huge blow, but I understand we're living through a global pandemic and people are losing their families. So in the grand scheme of things, you know, things pan out differently. So it's, it's just about a balance of also trying to stay, you know, mentally healthy I'm GSIing, so I see my undergraduate students just really struggle with virtual learning. So it, it's hard. It's hard for everybody. So I think balance is key. Taking it a day at a time, and just you know, trying to think about you know the the privileges and the blessings that we do have. Carlton, you can answer this too, I guess. But an arena GSI—that's graduate student instruction. Yes, right? sir. Yeah. What is teaching like on on this end? Because obviously people listening are probably doing remote learning, but on your guys' end, I've heard a lot of like my employees' kids complain like, oh my God, the teachers are really frustrating. But then I think about it, my friends are teachers and like, they're also frustrated. So like, like, and they're people too. They're also struggling with it. So like, I'm curious, like, what's your take on stuff? Oof, that, that's a big question. My take personally has been help the students as much as I can. Like deadlines yeah. are not a thing anymore. If a student emails me and they need an extension, I'm like, sure, you got it. Take the time you need. Send it to me when you can. And I think that's the approach a lot of people have taken. Just this sort of more understanding that, you know, yes, they're students, but they're also people. You don't, we have no idea what our students are dealing with, you know, behind the Zoom wall, right? Like they may have jobs, they may have responsibilities, they may have families, they may have health issues, they're dealing with COVID, they're dealing with so many things. So my approach has been, I'm just going to try to be as supportive as I can of my students and hope that they learn something. But at the end of the day, I don't, I see 
one of my roles as their GSI is just like not to make their life more difficult about a deadline or an assignment. At the end of the day, I think their health, their mental health is worth more than a paper on the domestication of some plant. Like I, I care about archaeology, right. but at the end of the day, like I think their mental health trumps the paper. So yeah, I'm very much on the camp of no one should fail during a pandemic. No one should get lower than like a C plus has been my personal perspective. A lot of students here at Boulder take the intro to archaeology because it is known as the fun class, because we do have like usually a Mesolithic day where during the week they come out and we have a bunch of things set up. They're going to throw out laddles on the quad and they're going to make stone tools and set the lawn on fire. And it's a usually a very hands-on class that people get to learn stuff. And through the pandemic, of course, all that's been canceled. And so I was at least in the opportunity as we switched to fully remote to be in a position to create all the new lectures that are based online. So they are very media heavy, but not like National Geographic. And I've told this to like a lot of David's ethno videos are in my lectures because they're fun. So and they they laugh and like Stefan Milo's and like other people, like the people that are coming and Raven and Tosh. I get young anthropologists who are good with YouTube and make the content fun. And so, and I'm just trying to make the class as fun as possible. Like one of their assignments is to make an Instagram post. Their final project is to make an ancient, yeah, to make their own ancient reps recipe and do a two page paper on why it's relevant and what this means about the civilization. So we've transformed it to be more interactive in other ways. And I always give my students, like I've shortened my lectures to it, there's supposed to be, it is okay. If anyone from City Boulder Admins listening, it is a 50 minute lecture. However, I allow 15 minutes at the end for us to talk about whatever. I may hit the main topics I'm supposed to and have an open space where they can ask questions about archaeology that won't interrupt the lecture. And a lot of it goes into ancient aliens, but I have fun with it. So that's how I'm just trying to have fun as much as they're trying to learn has been my approach because as Arena said, like, it's hard. And I always ask my students how they're doing, especially last semester was really rough. It's what it is. Yeah, it, it is what it is. I had some really nice reviews from some of my students last semester that kind of made me cry because they were really kind. And like, you know, this was the best class that I took last semester because you made it so and at least tried. And I'm like, I'm not going to fail anyone during a pandemic. This sucks. Like they're having a bad time. I'm having a bad time. But I can at least try to make one 50-minute section a week not so bad. Thank you both for teaching and, and adapting during these times. And on that note, we're going to go to the next segment. So this is episode 47 of Life in Ruins. We have Arena Bocci here, and we will catch you in segment two. Welcome back to the second segment of episode 47 of the Life in Ruins podcast. We're chatting with our friend Arena Bocci. And last time we talked about how... You know, we're adapting to the times with COVID and how like, you know, their teaching methods and learning methods have to change with what's going on in our environment. So obviously environment plays a huge role in how humans behave. So kind of now going to have a discussion about how humans behaved in the past based on their environment. So, I mean, I guess to, to start off, is geography something important to study as part of the past and how will you understand people in the past? Oh, yeah, 100%. So I actually, I link geography with environment. For me, those two things are intertwined. So when we think about the past, and we're like, when we're, you know, exploring our questions of, you know, humans in prehistory, it's important to understand that, you know, the national boundaries that we are very familiar with on maps did not exist. But the rivers and mountain ranges that we see on topographic maps did. And they played a huge role in the way that people interacted with their environments in the past. For example, how people may have been able to go through a mountain pass if it was accessible year round, if it was not accessible during certain parts or during certain seasons. If a river was navigable, if people could use it to move between different areas. So I, I, I think environment and geography play a huge role. And I also think latitude plays a huge part. And for me, I also associate latitude with geography. For example, like I guess we can think about, for example, the the Neolithic in Europe. And I'm going to talk about the Balkans because that's what I know better. But when people think about, for example, the the Neolithic coming into Europe, they often think that, you know, people are bringing these domesticated plants and animals 
and that everything is great and that these packages are just coming into the Balkans and, you know, everything is fine. People are going to become farmers. But what I think people fail to realize is that these domesticates are, you know, they're plants and animals and that they require certain environments and they require certain moisture levels and they're, you know, not great for all different kinds of levels of, you know, uh, how, how cold an area might be. So having an understanding of the latitude helps understand why certain domesticates took hold in places like the Balkans when they did and why certain ones didn't. For example, on the Adriatic coast, which where Albania falls on, and certain parts of the Neolithic, you have like a, an influx of caprines, like goats and sheep. And people may be wondering, okay, why are goats and sheep more preferred than cows, for example, which are more plentiful in the central Balkans. And of course, there's like, there may be lots of reasons why that is. It could be as simple as people aren't screening as well in different parts of the world, but it could also be that goats and sheep just do better in a mountainous environment than cows do. So I think having an understanding of geography helps us kind of understand the big questions that we ask of the past, like the spreading of the Neolithic into Europe and the Balkans and the cultural processes that came with it. It's a long-winded answer of saying yes. <laughs> That's a genius answer. That's a really interesting answer about that because you're you're right. It brings up like climate and like not only climate, but like fluctuating temperatures and then specific landscapes to that local area, not just that part of Europe. And then like animal behavior in a sense too. And like it, yeah, it, it's a lot of complex stuff you got to consider when you're looking at an area. I think it's interesting to think that I think in general, people think that, you know, the, like, like you were saying that the Neolithic just Everyone just went everywhere and it spread universally in the same like this rate. wave of advance. Yeah. 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 Exactly. But it's, it's insanely complicated. And it's, and that's because of all the things that you had mentioned, you know, latitude and things like that. Yeah. It just seems like the Paleolithic was a much simpler time. Now, talking <laughs> what Arena's talking about, not only do you have to worry about yourself and your family, but now you got to figure out what the animals are going to do. And now you have added responsibilities when before yeah. you just hunt them down. It's Yeah. And if the wheat will grow and if it'll get killed by early frost, there's just too much going on. Exactly. Yeah. I think Utsi was a goat herder, right? When he got frozen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. And that was a, clearly a mountainous environment because he's in the Alps. So mm-hmm. didn't bring cows up there with him. Cows are great, but I doubt they do as great in the mountains. Yeah. I mean, you'd be surprised. I've seen some cows in Kosovo and Albania up in the mountains, but it's rocky terrain, so it's, it's hard. It's hard for me, yeah. so I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there's like mountain bison out here in Wyoming and Colorado. So they live in these high altitude kind of areas. But surprising to me, you know, I have a hard time walking there as well. <laughs> And you mentioned like modern political boundaries don't necessarily translate in any way to the boundaries that were like back then. Whereas like obviously the Mississippi River is a pretty solid boundary in a lot of our states, but that's like a situational. In the past, like especially when we look at Paleo-Indian points in the Americas, we see a huge bias of them in the eastern United States. And then... Like, depending on which state you're in, there's a lot more found in those areas. And that's because that state might have more research put into Paleo-Indian archaeology than others. And there's just a lot more universities out east than there are out west. So it definitely influences that. So, Or even conversely, right? Because in the west, there's far more public land than in the east and in the central United States, right? Yeah. So even there's subdivisions of those political boundaries that affect sampling bias mm-hmm. and our understanding. Because if you look at as just like, you know, David, David's got me on a rabbit hole. No, go for it. You know, like the, the Mexican-US border, like trying to understand Southwest cultural change is, is hard because you have a, you, now you have a wall, a big, strong, beautiful wall, sorry, <laughs> in between Mexico <laughs> and the United States, which doesn't, you know, it kind of hampens the ability to walk across the imaginary line in the sense that we say those people stay there, our people stay here to understand about prehistoric boundaries. You know, even even in, in the United States, depending on what school you went to, will define what you call a certain cultural chronology. Because I think like if you're in Wyoming, there's one Paleo-Indian point you call one thing, but everyone else calls it another. And we see that all the time. We're even state boundaries. It's It's very layered, but at a national level, you know, like in, in the in the Balkans. Is that how you pronounce it? I've always heard it as Balkans, like a bit uh sound. Hmm, I say I say Balkans. I say Balkans too. I kind of just 
maybe I'm not saying it the way that most people say it. I blame my Albanianness. <laughs> but I, yeah, I say go with whatever is comfy. I'll, I'll, to just, you. I'll just do Balkans. That's different. But, you know, the, the Balkan states are, are much smaller and they've had a far more fraught relationship with each other, especially in the past three, three decades now and, you know, going to four decades. So for someone that works for you, Arena, who, who works over there, how does that affect the, your research in that area and the understanding of other archaeologists working in the region? Yeah, that, that's a, a very big question, and I, I'll try my best to answer it succinctly. I think there's some themes that you mentioned in terms of how archaeology works here in the U.S. that kind of carry over. So when you have these artificial boundaries drawn up, you have a disconnect and a conversation that is kind of, I guess, stopped or so there's no communication so for example you have archaeologists local archaeologists that have been working in the balkans for decades they're doing good archaeology but they're not communicating with each other so the archaeologists that are working in albania may not know as much about what's going on in other parts of the balkans and vice versa and i said albania because uh, you know i'm from albanian so i don't want to lead the other way around but that's the case for a lot of these nations in the balkans so just the other day i was reading an article and it was like looking at something like Neolithic sites in the Balkans, or it may have been something a little bit earlier. And I look at their map and I always get really frustrated when I look at people's maps because often there's no boundary for Kosovo, for example, or, or if there is, it's incorrect. But also like there's usually this gap where Albania and Kosovo are as if there's nothing there. And I'm like, Dude, you're a senior archaeologist. I know you know their sites dating to this period in Albania and Kosovo, but you're not representing them. So it creates this kind of false narrative that there's not much going on in that part of the world. And I think that's really inaccurate. And I don't mean to be like calling people out. I think it's sometimes a process of people just not being aware of each other's literature because it's in different languages. But when you are, you know, publishing in English and when, when you are writing these kind of overarching articles, I think you need to do the diligence to kind of look at the record of the countries you say you're representing to make sure that you're, you know, representing them well. And and that you're counting for the archaeology that's there. So as somebody that has some understanding of the archaeology of Albania, like I don't pretend to know it all, but if I'm reading an article, for example, I guess we'll stick with the Neolithic because that's what we started. If I'm reading an article that's like presenting the Neolithic of the Balkans and I see the map and I know that there's a site in Albania that's really key for understanding the Neolithic in the Balkans and it's not mentioned or it's not presented, then that kind of you know, that that speaks to a broader issue. And that's, I think, where geopolitics comes in, in terms of understanding how knowledge is presented and how politics play a role in the way that we present knowledge, if that makes sense. That was very well said. And I, I think it's, you don't get that complete picture by ignoring any, any data. So, so it's, it's important to be able to, and, and, and do that extra part of it. That's part of doing the research is, is, is putting in that time to do your, your background literature research. And that's, that's a whole class in and of itself. So it's gotta be, it's really important. And, and I, I like the, like that you brought up the examples there. It's, it's, it's super interesting to hear about that. Yeah. I mean, even going furthermore, like during the cold war, you know, Soviet scientists and archaeologists were not talking to Western scientists and archaeologists and creating their own interpretations of modeling things. And that still goes on today with some places like the, you know, the big country that jailed Winnie the Pooh. I mean, they have their own version of what the past is and where human evolution takes takes place. And and it's hard. To, and, and that's such a large landmass in that part of the world that has restricted people who are not nationals of that country to access that information, which was really brought to my eyes because in, in my cohort, so me and David went to school. He was in my cohort. His name was Zhao Kun. And he, his first year in the master's program was his first year in the United States. He had just come, you know, his education's from that country. And the stories he was telling us about how archaeology is accomplished there and what he was learning here was just, it made me recognize a lot of like my academic privilege and my position to hear some of the stories that he was talking about how people are getting censored and what they're and what they're allowed to say more importantly was the big one he's like yeah i wouldn't be able to say that you know things so 
that was just a really eye-opening moment for me to to recognizing where I get to go to school and what I'm allowed to say, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great point. I want to acknowledge that that I think maybe some of that is probably happening in the Balkans as well. So I I don't want to seem like overly like I'm critiquing too much what's going on because I, there's different layers of what's going on here. But as I guess as somebody who is kind of trained from a Western perspective, kind of looking back and having some sort of understanding of the local archaeology, I do see these gaps and I ask myself why. Yeah. And I mean, Southeastern Europe and like Eastern Europe in general is kind of very foreign to like American audiences. We kind of only really worry about Western Europe in like the news and things. So it's like, or the news only makes us worry about that. So yeah, it's, it's neat that like you take note of these things cause I would have no idea. And especially like, I guess it's tough cause post Soviet Eastern Europe is a mess. And like, how do you, like all the States are it's like shifting and it's, how do you write the history books like really quickly to change how stuff works? But I imagine then the archaeology is just wacky over there because of that too. Well, yeah. And that, and it's like, and it can be archaeology and understanding the past can be tied to social identity and how you perceive yourself and how you perceive yourself being on a landscape for a certain amount of time. So it, yeah, it becomes like a, a weapon or, or something that can be changed to, help further your cause or help con- connect you to, to your landmass. So it becomes this, you know, archaeology doesn't exist just in an academic sort of sense. It's really exists in this world of social identity and, and how we perceive ourselves as well. Yeah. And that's a really great point, Connor. And that's something that I think about a lot, especially working where I do, because not only is archaeology used to kind of cement a claim to an area, but it's also used to sort of deny other people a claim to the area. So like, especially where I work in Albania uh, and Kosovo, because Kosovo, for example, is area is an area that is disputed. So it, there's lots of ethnic tensions there. And people often use the archaeology to make an argument one way or another that, oh, Kosovo should be independent or no, Kosovo should not be independent. And they make references to the archaeological and the cultural material there to try to support both sides of the claim. So it's almost like it's going back towards a culture history type thing in parts of Europe. Well, not going back. I think in some parts it never went past. Fair, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I think in Albania, culture history has reigned supreme for a long time. And it's changing now after the fall of communism and the kind of influx of Western thought. It, it is changing. We finally you know, started doing radiocarbon dates and incorporating kind of uh, different sorts of theories. So things are changing and that's that's really exciting but for the most part it's but in Kosovo and in Albania culture history kind of reigned for a very long time mm-hmm. on that note we wanted to talk about the new memorandum of understanding with Albania but we're getting towards the end of the segment so we will talk about that in the beginning of the next segment and we are here chatting with Arena Bachi episode 47 of Life from a Podcast we will catch you in the third segment <laughs> Welcome back to episode 47 of Life and Ruins podcast. We're here in segment three still with Arena Bocci. She has not decided uh, to flee the podcast. So at the end of the last segment, Connor mentioned that, and, and, and Arena also pointed out, that there is an MOU, which is a mutual, it's not mutual. Memorandum. <laughs> memorandum of understanding. Yep, that's that's it. MOU, uh, Memorandum of Understanding. It's not in place though, right? It's between the United States and Albania. Mm-hmm. And well, it, it's in the works. It's in the works. It's in a work in progress. So what is this MOU? What does it mean and how does that affect archaeology? Some of those points that we just talked about in this last segment, right? Yeah, so this is super exciting. So the Republic of Albania has submitted a request to the United States to enter in a memorandum of understanding in regards to cultural resources in Albania, specifically to curb the looting of archaeological sites and the exportation of illegal artifacts out of Albania 
and into other parts of the world, like the US, for example. So this is really exciting for a lot of reasons. And I think it fits into the conversation we've been having today in regards to just the influence of geopolitics and archaeology and the interplay, because this MOU is a political agreement, but it involves, you know, cultural heritage. And I think it highlights a lot of really interesting things like the power dynamics at play. So for example, in Albania, we know, like local archaeologists know that looting is a problem. We know Mm -hmm. that artifacts are being illegally dug up and exported for illegal trade. But entering into an agreement with a country like the United States helps us I guess, helps us make some progress towards curbing this. And like I said, this kind of highlights the power dynamic of a country like Albania that has these cultural resources, that has this problem, but needs an agreement with another country to sort of try to tackle this in a way on the global sphere, because on its own internationally, there's a little agency that Albania has when it comes to curbing the illegal artifact trade. So I think it's super interesting. And it just speaks to a lot of things as well, like cultural heritage management and international relations. Like, for example, how UNESCO sites get awarded. Albania currently has three sites, for example. And it's really interesting when you look at what these sites are. Two of them are cities. So Berat and Girokastr, And they are known for like their more recent historical architecture. They're often cited as having really important Byzantine or Ottoman buildings. And the more prehistoric older stuff is also cited, but the importance is placed on this kind of newer stuff that ties this site to other parts of the Balkans or other parts of the world. And the same is for one of our other UNESCO world sites, Putrint, which is a colony in the south. And people love Putrint. Everybody talks about it because, you know, it was made a colony under Augustus and Caesar was there. So it's all cool and it's flashy. But what's interesting is that there's a bunch of other sites that have been put forth by Albania to get this UNESCO status, sites that don't necessarily have the same international ties. And they haven't been, I guess, ascended to UNESCO status. For example, a site that's near and dear to my heart, the Serza Poshna, which is home to these Illyrian royal tombs, but it's also home to an Iron Age settlement. So there's so much archaeology at this site. It's beautiful. And it's been on the register, I think, since 1996 or something like that, or maybe 1992, somewhere in the 90s. And it hasn't really made any progress towards becoming a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And then that begs the question, why? Why does a site like Butrint get to be promoted to a UNESCO World Heritage Site? And why does Sels not get that same treatment? And I think it speaks to, again, geopolitics, power dynamics, and even some of the biases in archaeology. We tend to have a preference, for better or for worse, towards big sites, sites with monumental architecture, sites that we can tie to other parts of the world like Greece or Rome or Turkey. So I think it ties on a lot of really interesting themes that we've been talking about today, which goes to show you that archaeology is is not just about the past. The way we understand the past is very much influenced by current political currents and how we go about protecting cultural resources and heritage and the like is very, very much influenced by politics. So I think all archaeologists, no matter where they work, need to be very much invested in understanding the politics and the geopolitics and the history of the place where they work if they want to really understand the archaeology of the area. And it seems like this memorandum of understanding almost gives credence and gives help to these these Iron Age or even older stuff that have artifacts and things that can be easily moved. Like these, these Byzantine temples are not going anywhere anytime soon so there's there's a bias in that and that the built world is getting this is is not going to be affected as much by this and Mm -hmm. these other sites seem to need more protection and this this memorandum could be a way of of making a step towards that yeah definitely and I'm, i'm really excited by it again i understand that the need for this memorandum does highlight some issues that we've talked about but i'm excited because i think it's a step forward. Like, cause I was in Albania, I guess it was two years ago now, cause I haven't been there in forever. And I was surveying sites for my research. And I, when I was surveying a site, I noticed that people had gone there with like a metal detector to dig up. I guess people are looking for gold. Uh, they never find gold. They just find, you know, pieces of pottery, but that doesn't deter people. So like I'm out here surveying my sites and I just see like, like holes and like a Neolithic 
axe kind of just in plain sight and you know that was dug up because that is usually not found on the surface. So looting is a problem and I'm glad that that Albanian cultural heritage management, I don't want to say agencies, but I guess bodies are going to get maybe the help or bolstering or support that they need, hopefully from this memorandum. It's not going to solve everything. And I definitely don't want to make it seem like overseas international interference is the solution because I don't think it ever is. But I think in this case, unfortunately, given the power dynamics and the lack of agency Albania has in the international sphere, I think this is what it takes to make a step in the right direction. I do think long term, we need to think about creating a scenario where countries like Albania are able to do these things themselves and where they don't need interference or help from an outside agency. But I think we're a little bit a ways away from that for the time being. Carlton, you saw something similar in Ukraine, right? Where there were a lot of outside researchers that came in to do. Yeah. It's also a post-communist country. Yeah, Rena, since last time we talked to you, I think that later that summer, I went to Ukraine and worked there for five weeks. Long five weeks. <laughs> but what I noticed, and something that was brought to my attention by the Ukrainians I worked with, they're really confused why I was there. They've never had anyone come out to just be a volunteer and like pay to dig because they're used to Central or West Europeans coming in and funding a site and taking the research and publishing it back in other journals. But, you know, they always have to have like an assistant who's Ukrainian who funds it, but they're using Ukrainian workers. I remember one made the comment, you know, yeah, why would I bring people from my country here? Like if I could pay one Ukrainian worker a day, what they would expect in an hour. And so it was kind of an eye-opening moment, I guess, just to see to see that happen. And as David said, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, we had Simon uh, a couple episodes back. So if you're real curious, go listen to that for anyone that's listening. And the same thing, you know, good friend of mine who worked with me in Wyoming, he's Croatian and he has similar stories about what goes on. And he's said a lot of things and privately that you've talked about here, Arena, because, you know, Croatia also has a history with one of its neighbors and he's said some of the same same things when it comes to Croatian and other Balkan country archaeology. Yeah, the Balkans are an interesting place to work, that's for sure. Do you feel like your archaeology work and like what your research is going to do can help with like the understanding of that area and like the political sphere of that area in a way? Well, I certainly hope so. I don't pretend to be the solution sure, to Balkan yeah. archaeology. I think there are many great minds and people that know a lot more than I do. But I hope to play my role, my little part in like trying to illuminate some of the issues in Balkan archaeology. Really, I think one of the things that I think is my job is just to be as good of an archaeologist as I can be, to be critical about my positionality, to be critical about the fact that, yes, I am Albanian, but I'm trained in the West, so I shouldn't approach going back home with a colonial mindset that I'm coming from the West, therefore I know better. You know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. there's a lot of things to be considered. So I do hope to play my my part in trying to make archaeology in Albania a little better to kind of help move us forward, you know, past the the time of culture history and towards this more kind of collaborative archaeology, which is the trend, I hope. And I think, yeah, I guess a long winded way of saying, I hope, but my role is a little one and there are many people doing similar things. So it's, it's, it's all about people working together, Balkan archaeologists, communicating with each other, talking to each other, sharing data, ideas, talking theory and doing our part collectively to try to move the field forward. Sure. Well, best of luck with it. <laughs> yeah, we are, we are very excited to see it and, you know, keep checking in on you and, 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 and chatting with you about these things because it's, it's super interesting and not something we're exposed to on a, on a, on a daily basis. So uh, we wanted to add this a little bit in here at the end of this segment to talk about, so it's this Thursday? What's the, what's the, what's the date, Mr. Howe? 18th is Anthropology Day, right? So February 18th, that David just whispered into my ear, is National Anthropology Day. And because we have you on here and you go to such an important school in anthropology and archaeology in general, we wanted to kind of talk to you about how your your theory is kind of taught to you and how you ultimately give that information back to the public in a way that's digestible and, and usable. 
That's a great question. I hope I give the answer that you want to hear. I may not. So I'll lead with saying I think theory is important. I don't think theory is the be all end all. I think practice is just as important. Methods are just as important and ethics are also very equally important. Going to a place like Michigan, I think there's, in terms of theory, I do appreciate that I've gotten a good understanding of just the history of archaeological thought and what it means to think like a processualist. But I think to somebody looking into archaeology uh, now and thinking about pursuing, or somebody who's in a PhD or thinking about pursuing a PhD, I would say that the days of kind of classifying ourselves as one type of archaeologist are behind us, or at least I hope they are. So yes, read up on your theory, but read up on all theory. Don't just read processual or post-processual, read feminist theory, read Mm -hmm. black feminist theory, read about geopolitics, read about gender, like read about everything and make sure that you are a well-rounded kind of academic and also focus on your methods, develop your methods, develop your applications. Again, try to kind of broaden out and not pinhole yourself into one kind of frame of thinking. You'll be, I think, a stronger academic for it. So as I'm making my way right now in my my degree, I'm I'm trying to read about the archaeology of not only Albania and Kosovo. I'm trying to I'm trying to read about it all. And yes, it, it, it's a lot. It's overwhelming, but I think it'll help me understand what's going on in my specific part of the world better if I have an understanding of what's going on, for example, in Croatia, and if I can tie that into what I'm seeing in the Iron Age in Albania or not. So, yes, there is important. The archaeology of uh, the history of archaeological thought is important to know. Like, for example, it's very easy to critique culture history because hindsight is twenty twenty. There are many, many pitfalls to the culture historical approach, but knowing it is useful. Knowing it, what its pitfalls are are very useful for trying to move forward in terms of your theory and your paradigm today. So, <laughs> I hope that made sense. I think that is an excellent answer, better stated than I think the three of us could ever say, but. Yeah, because you're throwing all these ideas for like, here's this way of thinking and this way of thinking and like here's style versus function and then here's structural functionalism and then you're like, and then like it just becomes words. But at least when you're told all of those things, you can kind of get an idea for like, okay, right, cultural history or culture history, I can't look at things that way because that would be biased. And like behavioral ecology is awesome. But then I'm looking at people just as data on a landscape and that's not good. So I got to like, it helps steer you in a way. And like, I think you're right. There's no reason for us anymore to just pigeonhole yourself into one of those and be like, I'm processual. And it's like, no, just think critically. (laughs) I got a hot take. This is something that my, because I had this conversation with my advisor, Dr. Bamforth. And, you know, he's from the same gender, like he went to, Gatecliff with Bob. So same generation, they're the same age. And something Doug told me is like, you know, theory has definitely changed over the years. And now instead of it being, it's more, it's just more like a toolkit. All the theories are kind of like a set of tools and you get the right one for the job. I just had to retake theory as part of the CU Boulder thing as they made me retake theory. And there was, I was far more engaged last semester than I was the first semester of my master's as at Wyoming. And I, and I felt more comfortable talking about it because not only did I have, you know, a theory class behind me, but at that point I'd read so much in the literature is much easier for me to engage with theory and enjoy theory than it was the first time I took it. Cause I was, you know, it's just daunting. Yeah. Daunting. You're a, you're a, you're a freckled baby deer in the woods who doesn't know anything and you're just scared, but I found it, it was one of my, I looked forward to it, even though it went on, it was supposed to be three hours, but it would often go to five hours. But after three, we were allowed to drink wine. So that, that might've helped, but I, I fell in love with it. And I'm actually working on a theory paper now, which actually talks about cultural history and its applications to today and how it works very well with indigenous archeology, span how you can take cultural history and actually intertwine the two because they kind of build off each other and add some and replace some of those pitfalls with other parts of theory to combine them to be like, this isn't a bad for what it was trying to do, it was a bad approach, but you can take some of the methods culture history does to better understand the archaeological record. I don't know. Now I'm going on a rant. It's but. who wields it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I 100% agree. Yeah, I, I love the melding of things. And it's because it's not just, they're not just categories. They're in flux and they can work together. And and yeah, and on that, thank you so much for chatting with us, Arena. Thank you so much for coming on. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm always happy to talk about maps, Albania, Kosovo, and all of the above. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you always helping with those posts too. It's like, I always explain you as big brain because like you just <laughs> understand. I can be like, hey, can you explain this to me? And then you can just explain it to me better than two years of grad school taught me. So it's You're like, well, cool. The secret yeah. is I, I Google my prelim notes. I like control F in my prelim notes. And that's how I get you an answer. <laughs> that's, I mean, it, if it works, it works. There you go. So before we end the show, Arena, what are a couple like sources, like one to three books, articles, videos that you would recommend to anyone interested in Albanian archaeology, history, anthropology. This is what we're going to call the, the Caleb Welch section because that kid is hungry for literature. So you got anything at the top of your head that our, our listeners could, could check out for themselves? Let me think. So in terms of archaeology of Kosovo, there's a PDF available online for free. It's called Archaeological Guide of Kosovo. I recommend that to everybody that knows nothing about Kosovo and wants to know something. It's in English and it's free. It's Ben Mirod Berisha. Uh, he's an archaeologist, a local archaeologist in Kosovo, so it's great. In terms of Albania, I think I have already mentioned the, Illyria, the Illyrians by John Wilkes. It's an oldie. It's like from 1992, but I still kind of refer to that every now and then. There's a great article, though, that came out recently in 2019. It's by uh, Marco Porcic. He talks about inequality in the Balkans in a way that I have never seen before, and I think it's so great. It's 50 pages, but he brings in theory into the archaeology of the Balkans. So it's really great. He looks at, he tries to answer the question of why don't we have states in the Balkans? And it's a great article. I mean, I really like it. So I totally recommend it to anybody who's interested in the Balkans. This is a great injection of theory, in my opinion. In terms of archaeology in general and ethics, Hauser et al. 2018, there, there's an article called Archaeology is Bearing Witness. And I think it's a really great piece. It has multiple perspectives from many different archaeologists who are working in the field right now, talking about what the role of archaeology is. So what is our job as archaeologists? So I totally recommend that to everyone and everybody. So I think that was three or four. Yeah, that's perfect. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Mostly Instagram. I, I post lots of rambling stories on Instagram about maps and geopolitics. So if you want my takes, you can find me on the Albanian archaeologist on Instagram. Arena is a prolific Instagram story person. There's me a lot of stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's great. I always learn something though. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Or I find cool accounts that I can then follow. Yeah. Excellent. Well, everyone, we just interviewed Arena Bocci, PhD student in anthropology at the University of Michigan, soon to be PhD candidate, fingers crossed. You can find Arena on Instagram by following her at the Albanian Archaeologist. Please be sure to rate the podcast, provide us with feedback on whichever podcasting platform you choose to listen to our show. And when I say please rate our podcast, I mean please rate our podcast. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. All right. And this joke is coming from the Dean Johnnen joke machine that he is. Actually, he just sent me a website and it works out great. But these are dad jokes sent to me by my dad. So someone complimented my parking today. They left a sweet note on my windshield that said, parking fine. Ew. These are getting worse, man. <laughs> Chuckled at that. So much worse. <laughs> They're getting into the groaner stage, which is uh, yeah. what I'm going for. <laughs> We're there. All right, everyone, we are out. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.